This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with former professional cricket player and current coach, Mark Robinson. He discusses his time with the England Lions and his current role with Warwickshire and how he creates and manages the team, what distinguishes the good players from the greats, as well as how they support individual development during a packed cricket season. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Mark, listen, really appreciate you giving up some time. I know it's been a bit of a hectic morning for you with the announcement of the fifth test. Um, but how are things in general? Are you all safe and well? They're all good, thank you. Yeah, um, coming to the climax of the season. So, um, some tired bodies, some tired minds, and just trying to make sure everybody's in a good place to, as I say, we, we travel to Leeds on tomorrow. So, it's just about trying to get everything ready uh, for that game there where we're still in with the mix to win the championship, which is exciting. Perfect. So obviously I've kind of reached out to you via social media because I've seen a lot of your experiences, both in a playing capacity and then obviously subsequently in a, in a coaching capacity, which has been really, really interesting. Um, so for people that maybe haven't come across you before, or don't necessarily know your background. Do you want to kind of give a whistle stop tour of your career, I guess, and then where you are at the moment and what, what that entails from a day to day basis? Okay, yeah. Um, well, Yorkshireman, born in the, the city of Hull, which has got a silent H, Hull. Um, normal, low middle class family. Mum was a teacher. <coughs> Dad a works chemist. Owe them a lot for phoning me around, getting me through what, what was a tough environment at, at Yorkshire. Um, but my first county I played for was Northamptonshire. Um, then eventually, after five years, came back to joined my childhood love, which was where you were born, which was Yorkshire. Did five or six years there and before moving on to Sussex, where I spent a long time, I suppose, my family and my kids became Southerners because I spent about 16 years there, both as a player, as a coach. Um, became a second team coach um, under Peter Moores uh, and Chris Adams, who was the captain at that point, having finished my career and eventually took over from Pete I think 2006 was the starting point for that one, um, and did nine years as a head coach. A couple of couple of winter tours with the Lions, um, which was brilliant. Um, before taking a bit of a, a leap of faith and becoming the head coach of the England women's team, which was a brilliant four years which I had there. Um, before I ended up where I am now, which is the head coach of uh, Warwickshire, um, as I say, at the end of a of a season which has been exciting with all the highs and lows that go with it. Perfect. I think there's loads of really interesting bits that obviously we'll pick up and we'll talk through. I think if we start with where we are at the moment in terms of Warwickshire, obviously you mentioned this, it's been quite a gruelling season and I imagine having challenges with COVID, etc. Um, for you guys moving to the last part with obviously hopefully being in a position to win the championship, um, was that your aim? Was that an explicit aim at the start of the season or, or what did that look like when you when you began the summer really? I think you always have to aim to win. Uh, whether you, it's a realistic game, it doesn't matter. I think you're cheating your players, you're cheating the members, you're cheating the supporters if you say anything else. I think you, you, you've got to state um, an intention to win. Um, that shouldn't be an, an overriding pressure to perform. But, you know, you, when you haven't bowled a ball, your aim is to win every competition you enter. It has to be, otherwise there's no point entering. You enter to come second, you don't enter... Just have a go or to experience it, you enter to try and win. Um, we've got ourselves into a place um, with about a month to go where we had, we had a away quarterfinal at Kent in the T20s and we were about to start the four day, the four last four championship matches, top of the leagues, which, which was brilliant. Um, we just had a bit of a setback in our last championship game. Um, so we've just dropped to second with about five points, I think, behind. Yorkshire with everything to play for. So that's exciting. And whether we end up fulfilling those, those dreams and ambitions at the beginning of the season, um, it doesn't matter. I just think, oh, you always think you've got to state an intention to, to do something special. And if you don't, you review and you, you replan and, um, you, you, you aim to try and put right what maybe you didn't do as well or 
reflect on what all the good stuff you did as well. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting you say trying to trying to win, and I think it shows a good mindset in terms of what we'll have in the change room. I guess a question for me is: there's so many different competitions that you guys will take place in. Obviously, you've got, as you said, your county championship, you've got your one days, your T20s, and now with the hundred, etc. When you're looking to construct a team, construct a squad, now I know the hundreds a little bit different to that. How do you go around? Um, I guess, facilitating to be able to compete on all fronts? Because what you'd expect from a Red Bull player may be very different to what you want your opener in a T20 competition show to do. So how do you go around constructing the squad to be able to compete in as many competitions as possible? I mean, I've had four years out of county cricket doing the girls, as as I said, and I've got a director of cricket who, to the degree that's his role, with the assistance of the coaches and obviously the head coach particular and, and a captain to construct a, a squad that can either compete on all fronts or if the club policy is to prioritise one competition over some of the other ones to do that. So this being my first year and starting in February, I inherited the squad to a large extent. Um, it's probably now onwards you can start to shape potentially personnel. But I think it's I think first of all you've got to decide what's the club's ambition, what's the club's expectation. Um, so I know Whitecher, you know, the club's expectation is to to assemble a team that can win both competitions. Um, and it's okay me saying I have ambition to win everything, but sometimes there's a realistic expectation and there's your goal to go out and try and win. Um, but Whitecher's is to to assemble and to enable a squad that can compete on all fronts. Um, I think it's a challenge. The bigger challenge every year it seems to be getting harder. I think the hundreds made that harder because it's almost took out the 50 over competition for your better players which will have its own challenges I think down the line for, for England but also for us as counties because the gulf now between being a white ball T20 player or 100 player and red ball the skills you need are quite vast now and the 50 over is a bit of a bridge actually because some of the 50 over cricket allows you to do bit of everything really sometimes you'd have to rebuild sometimes you'd have to accelerate and to be power plays etc in the same way as you get in the t20 so it had all aspects of the red ball and the white ball in it it was a bit of a bridge but that bridge has gone now so we're going to have these two um contrasting games you know especially in april and may the balls seeming all around you want a, play, a player to be able to line up off stump and back time and absorb pressure and then you're expecting potentially that same player in late June, July, whenever the T20 happens for us as counties next year, to go out and run down the wicket and whack his fifth ball, let his face down the ground. And that's 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 a challenge, but it's something that you know the modern player is going to have to embrace. And how do you how do you go around supporting players with that? Because you like you said, it is such a challenging dynamic. So if you look at players at the moment, like Jason Roy has had a a lot of success in white ball cricket came in for the ashes recently and maybe found that challenging. Um, and you have other players that maybe Alistair Cook, for example, traditionally was very good in Red Bull, maybe wasn't as dynamic as England were moving that direction in, in your white ball stuff, uh, stuff. So how do you go around supporting players to have a holistic game and being able to do both if they are able to do both? I think I think everybody, I think majority of young players at an early age start out with the ambition to. Is, look, I'm, I'm historically everybody wanted to play for England in, in, in Test match cricket, and I think that is still there now for young players. Um, I think they start out wanting to play in all formats. They want to be in the big competitions, and they want to be representing England. I think there might be a point when realism um, hits in. And the contrasting skills needed start to challenge that, and players start to go down a specialist routes, be it red or white, or the game forces you down a specialist route. With the younger players at the moment that we've got at, uh, here at Warwickshire, you are trying to, as you said, facilitate their learning and give them the skills needed to be able to do both. Um, at the highest level, you look at England. Um, if you look off, to, I mean, I don't know what you're like off top of your head. How many, how many players are playing both formats at the moment? 
Stokes, who's obviously for different reasons not in that squad. Um, I can't think of any of the batters who are playing both formats. Roots just now being the last. Milan would be the last one, isn't it? Milan and Stokes were the only two that get into both squads. Roots being disregarded because they only want one anchor player, which is what Milan does that role now. Um, so it just shows you how hard it's getting. Root is a very fine T20 player in his own right and will do great for Yorkshire, obviously. But that squeeze potentially is going to get bigger and bigger, which is a danger for our game. Um, but the game always evolves and the game always adapts. And that's what you're trying to help your players adapt and evolve at the same time. And But it, it, it is a challenge for both coaches and players to get that right. And do you think, it's, is it like technical work for the players to work on in terms of how the different formats challenging, challenges them and how the ball challenges them and the type of bowling? Is there technical work you can do to support them in that area? There's technical work you can do for both formats in terms of ball striking, um, and likewise technique for, you know, the ability to leave and to play the ball late, etc. But it's sometimes a tempo... You know, the tempo of the, both games are, are completely different. The basics are the basics. You know, good balance, good head positions, etc., will always stand you in good stead. Um, but it's just to say that the tempos are, are so completely different now. That, that there is there is going to be a challenge, and you see different players at different times. I remember Phil Salt. I've done a Lions. I've just been on a Lions tour um, to. South Africa, I think it was. So it was the first time I'd come across um, Crossgrass Billings and the, you know, the Kent lad. And, and he, got, he strikes the ball well. And obviously on that tour, we'd got, we, it was a great tour, the South Africa Lions tour, because we had the majority of those players went on to be part of that 50 over World Cup team. You know, so we had the Stokes in it and Johnny Burstows, et cetera, Vince. Um, I remember seeing Billings strike the ball. And when I came back to Sussex, we had a young Phil Solid just been signed on the academy. And um, we'd nicked him a little bit from Surrey. I think he was in the backwater at Surrey and not getting a going any of their cricketers. So he chose to come to us. And I came back from the Lions tour in the indoor school was, was Phil Salt as a young kid, 16 or whatever he was. And he just hit the ball differently. He hit it more crisper and cleaner. And it's very hard to quantify what that looks like and, and, uh, and feels like or sounds like, but they just hit it differently. And it reminded, it reminded me of Billings. And, you know, we, my last year at Sussex, we played him as a 17-year-old in the 50-over game to try and get him off and running. And I remember saying to, to the coaches, and it caused a little bit of consternation, I guess, I said, I don't want him messing about. I said, if he gets caught cover and he gets caught mid-off, we've got to let him go. It's bloke. It's all about ball striking and hitting the player. And, and we can't bring him, make him conform to how we traditionally would see see the world. We need him to be to play to his strengths. And Salty, speaking to him last year, still have got that ambition to play in both formats. And while players still have the, the ambition to play in both formats, then they will have a chance. But he... There is a danger at some point, Phil Salt, if he feels there's a long way from that red ball, will go down that route. Um, but he hasn't played a white, he hasn't played a red ball game all year for Sussex, which is a problem. Um, whether how much is that down to injuries, how much is that down to Sussex's policy playing all the kids, I don't know. But that's then almost forcing Salt down this route, and that's dangerous. Um, the, the Jason Roy one, you know, I'm not privy to that selection but it looks for me a bit left field because you're also trying to look at what's he done in red ball cricket what's his record like um you know to pluck somebody out of county cricket who argument arguably averages 30 and expect him to suddenly produce in test match cricket is a, is a leap of faith the jason roy argument would be because he's performed under pressure in front of big crowds but the white ball doesn't move the same it doesn't move consistently. The red ball in England, at least, it moves consistently. So you, there's a lot of decisions you're having to, you know, to, to come to terms with and, and make on, on selection, be it our level at county level or, or test match level. And when we're talking about the movement of the ball, what are we, 
like what's the disparity between the two? And I know this changes from pitch to pitch, from you know stadium to stadium, bowler to bowler, etc. But if you were looking at an average of saying if you bowl this line and left, say for example, Old Trafford in with a white ball compared to very similar in the red ball, what's the disparity that the batsmen are actually looking like, and how does that affect their decision making? Well, in generally in Test match cricket, especially in England, you get a lot more grass on. The wicket, England's strength is their seam department. Has been for a while while Jimmy Anderson has been the, the god that he, he has been. So when they play to the strengths, Jimmy Anderson is broad, wokesy, etc. So they have grass on the wicket. White, when you play a white ball game, runs is king. It's an entertainment. Everybody wants to see the ball going out the ground and boundaries. So there's very little grass. So there's a lot less seam movement. And the white ball gets discovered very quickly. So after often four overs, some maximum maybe eight overs, eight, you know, 50 over game, maybe you might get some swing, 10 maybe, sometimes in a T20 game, two, two overs a swing. You know, in a red ball, you could swing all day. You, know, you can even get the old ball, might go soft, it'll swing all day. In England, especially, cook of a ball and abroad is different. So that moving ball, Challenging your technique, challenging your ability to lead the ball, challenging your ability to keep it straight back is all day in a red ball. In a white ball game, you might you might have to do that for two or three overs. And anyway, you've got no slips because they're all hiding because you're running at the ball trying to put it over the bowler's head. So it's just a completely different technical and mental challenge. So if we're looking at the individual work that you'll do with players, um, I don't know how much time you get kind of from day to day or week to week to actually work with them on these areas. But say, for example, you've got a batsman who, um, again, it might be Phil Salt, it might be someone different, but is very good at ball striking, very clean during the white ball, but at the moment dabbles outside off and gets nicked off where he's you know trying to get bat on ball when maybe he should leave it. How would you plan about supporting that player, I guess, preparatory-wise in training to then hopefully give them the opportunity in Red Bull cricket to actually put that into practice? Well, depending on what team they're in. If they're in the second team trying to get in the Red Bull team, but they're, in, but they're currently, you know, so we had somebody, I don't know, Adam Hawes here, the fine white ball player, T20 player. Um, but isn't in our red ball team. He's in the second team trying to get into the red ball team. So he's trying to lead well and, and score the volume of runs that show he can play in both formats. And the coaches and myself are all trying to help him with his... And mindset comes into this a lot. So you try to support him by getting the right mindset um, as well as the technical ability to go to, go to play against the moving ball. And... But obviously, at some point, that that T20 is coming around the corner and you're trying to flip their emphasis where they're now making sure they've got the, the game plans and the shot selection and the ball striking ability to, to actually play in the competition that they're going to guarantee to start in. So it is, a, it is a challenge, to say. It's a challenge for everybody, the coaches, the players. Economically, in the county game, from a budget point of view, if you've got a player in both competitions, that's budgetary better than having almost two completely different squads. So you look at the challenge that Sussex have got, where they've got a franchise T20 team, but a very, very junior red ball team. And that to get both right is to say hard. And ideally, you want to make it work and compete on all fronts. You need players who are playing in both formats. Will Rhodes for us is playing in both formats. Sam Hay be one of our better ones, best ones, I guess. Our best players in our T20 competition is one of our best batters in the Red Bull. So those basic skills he's got, that balance, the ability of balance, etc., allows him to transfer from one format to the other. And would you do work with them like in the nets, et cetera? So is there specific strategies or, or sessions that you do with a player like that in the nets to try and really hone in or focus on these skills? Yeah, absolutely, all the time. All the time. The, the challenge would be in a busy county season, um, you don't get many you don't get as many practice days because you generally get the your games come quite thick and fast. So you generally rest it, try to get players to recover or get away from the ground to create space. Um, 
so that we we had a quarterfinal at Kent, um, and we had five days build up to the game, which we were lucky in that sense. Although COVID hit us badly and injuries, but we so we played the game on the Friday. We get beat by Kent. Get back to the hotel at midnight in Canterbury. Travel back to Birmingham on the, the Saturday. Um, whatever the players do, the washing, pick up the wipes, whatever they do. And then we travelled to Manchester on the Sunday to play an important four-day game on the Monday. So basically one day's turnaround. One day's travel back, covering. One day's practice, which included travelling to Manchester, to turn around for a four-day game. And that's, that's quite hard. When three-quarters of your team have just been concentrating on playing on a TV game to try and get in finals day. So you try to help them ditch the disappointment of the defeat plus get the head round facing Parkinson on a spinning wicket at Old Trafford on two days' time. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I, I guess you don't, from the outside looking in, where there's just cricket after cricket after cricket on on Sky, which is brilliant, you don't necessarily see the background of it, of them being away playing in other competitions that aren't televised. And it doesn't sound like during the season there's a lot of opportunity to actually maybe address areas where people are struggling or need support? I think no, there's, there's, there is, there's always opportunities and you have to make time and make best use of the time. The challenge is that the, if, you, if you're struggling in a red ball competition and you're struggling with your technique, the coaches will have time. What's hard is to, I don't know, if you're young Rob Yates in our red ball team, young 20-year-old, highly promising three first-class hundreds this year, um, for him to prove he's, a, he's, a T, he's going to start in the T20 game, that's quite hard because we had one warm-up game. Championship game finishes whatever day, a Wednesday. You know, you, your first match for reals in a six days' time. By the time he's had two days off, two practice days, one warm-up game, how, how is he forcing his, his case? Well, pre, well, in the second team, they've just had three weeks of playing T20 games. So those boys, if you're in the second team, they're building their case the same way they're playing, while poor Rob Yates has just been battling against the new balls, leaving and playing well. How does he show he should be playing? Never mind how does he even get ready. So that lack of lead time, that lack of... You end up taking punts a little bit on play, like they think, you think they can do it. Sometimes you don't have enough evidence is what you like to to sometimes play people, especially so the younger then, ones. So then if you shift that over to the winter, when obviously cricket isn't necessarily being played in this part of the world anyway, is that when they would bed in and try and maybe make some changes on techniques and all that type of stuff and really challenge themselves to improve on an area? Yeah, so my model would be pre-Christmas, any real technical issues? That you're wanting to really fun, big fundamentals you're trying to change with the batter of ball, you're trying to attack it at Christmas and try and create the back of it. And then after Christmas, you start is it becomes starting to become a little bit less individual, a little bit more room work. And then the closer you get to April the first, the more you're working um as a as a team uh, in terms of a little bit more competition wise, you're trying to start to get them used to competing again. So you go very individual pre-Christmas. I do very individual pre-Christmas. And then the long, the closer you get to the season, the more you, you, you're trying to get them ready to go into competition and ready to be judged. But players also need space and time. Um, in a perfect world, we would have outdoor nets all year round, wouldn't you? And you, you know, not being indoor surfaces, etc. Yeah, so... I guess on, on that front, so looking at if people are struggling, what techniques do you use to help them in, in an area? So if it was against left arm spin, for example, they're, they're having probably every time they play against bodies, left arm spin, that they're really struggling to gauge the flight of the ball and, and whatnot. What strategies do you have to actually help them with that? Do you use analysis? Is it just a, um, is it just a technical coaches? What, what would you do to support someone in that context? I think, first of all, you've got to know you're right. 
right, which is the most important thing. So you've got to have your evidence and your, and your, and your facts. So for, if the national average getting out to left arm spin is, I don't know, three out of 10 times, three out of 10 innings, and, and you've got a player who's at six, it's pretty obvious. So your first way you know is right. Or if he's got a low strike rate against left arm spin, you know, there's got your evidence to say we need to, to improve. And then your decision between yourself and the player is, is it technical or is it mental? Is it mindset? And, that, and then you're working on, and then you're deciding if it's technical um, or game plan, probably might, you might have the right game plan, try to work on those two. It's technical, it's obviously a bit more specifically. If it's game plan, you're, you're on, but machine called Merlin, which can, which, which can make the ball spin either way, he's on that and he's working on his options, et cetera his ability to sweep or come down the wicket, whatever. Um, and likewise, if it's mindset, you, you're trying to delve a little bit more into what's stopping the player expressing himself or stopping the player wanting to score or getting anxious and getting into poor positions. And is there any example that comes to mind that someone who's gone away over those winter months that's really bed down on an area where they were struggling the previous year and have gone on to have either an average year or been really successful in that area? Oh, God, there'll be loads, millions. So we play at Warwickshire here, whose perception or the facts would say um, from a T20 point of view is strike rates too, too slow, too low to really kick on and get the high honours. Um, it's a bit risk averse. This is not now technical. This is mindset. It's just so, you know, you give them the facts. You know, this is what the best players strike at. This is what you strike at. You, you try and um, give them the support in terms of how you're going to do it. You try and understand what's holding him back. And you try to encourage him to basically just to take risks earlier from a T20 point of view. And, you know, he practices it. Um, but ultimately, it's about crossing the line. Have you... Are you brave enough as a player? Can you, as a player, put into practice what you've just been working on? Um, that's where the mental side is so important. And, you know, the player in question this summer has had a great T20 campaign. You know, he's won games for, for us. He's improved his strike rate, won games for us, and enhanced his reputation. And so you're, you're mentioned quite a lot around the mindset of players. Um, which I think is interesting. I guess the, the, the thing that's fascinating about cricket is it's kind of an individual sport in terms of it's you against the bowler, but then obviously there's kind of load of other people around that affect your thinking. In your experience um, and the players you've either played with or worked with, is there any common threads to those that really kick on in terms of their mindset? Is there a particular area that they excel compared to maybe other players that have talent that don't, or aren't able to make that jump to the top level? Yeah, not the best generally have a ruthlessness about them, self, self, selfishness about them. They're relatively selfish. Um, often the best have some traits that are that nice. The real winners. And that you don't actually enjoy some of the traits because they've got it, that single-mindedness. Um, the best have an ability to decompartmentalize. Um, you know, you have players that are brilliant in the gym, brilliant in the winter. When it comes to crossing the line and handling pressure, not as good. You have players at the other end of the spectrum who hate the gym, um, hate the practice, but they're brilliant at competing. And the perfect player, ideally, is he's, he's a good pro. He, does his gym well? He knows the importance of looking after his body and his mind, and he's good at. He's open. He's open to practice, and um, you know he's coachable. And yet, and yet, he has this ability to cross the line and and play under pressure when it matters. That that's utopia in a player. And how would you manage that as a coach? Because, like you said, there you you may have some individuals that are really driven and ultimately could be your match winners but might also present potentially some challenging behaviours for the group or 
challenging behaviours for younger players that maybe haven't experienced the necessity of winning because they've been on a developmental pathway. How do you go around, I guess, cultivating a group generically so you've got the right balance, but then how do you go around managing expectations for all parties involved? I think there's there's two there's two sides a player has to play a coach. <coughs> Club, support staff, S and C. Everybody has to understand there's two sides to the game. There's a performance side that we can't ever escape from, it's a performance driven game. When you're a player, your currency <coughs> your currency, your value is your runs and your wickets. Your runs or your wickets, depending on what you do, your wins and your losses, that's your currency. You know, how many runs have you scored? Keep scoring runs, you'll keep having a career. At some point, you don't score runs, and that's over a prolonged time, you won't have a career. So you're tapping on your shoulder. That's the fact. You can never escape from that. So you have to understand that. You have to produce. Now, on the flip side, if, if that consumes you and overtakes you, and that's all you're about, you forget the process. You, bet the, you forget the love of the game and why you're playing the game in the first place. It takes over your life and it affects your relationships at home and the ground and everything else and yourself and cloud. So it's it's walking that tightrope of understanding both really what allows you what allows you to to perform in the first place. What what bits you have to give a little bit in and what bits you have to have a bit more attention to. Um, and as I say, you'll have some players who. Who love who love being in the game, um, love everything about the game except the bit that really counts. It's out there. So why do why do ask you a question? Why do players cricketers love it when it rains? Get to have a rest with their mate. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing. Anything else? I don't know. In my opinion, well, my opinion will be because they're not being judged. You know, as a professional sportsman, you, you're judged, and it's in any sport you judge on a minutely, hourly, daily basis. You know, you judge when you come in, what moves he in? Is he in a good mood? Is he up for it? Is he this? Is he that? You know, the, the crowd making, the commentators making judgments on the body language, his performance, his technique, the runs he scored, when's he going to get some? His juice, not, he's going to get out the team, so and so. It's all the time. And when you're in the dressing room, it's safe. When you're not playing, it's safe. So that's my opinion is why players quite enjoy it when it rains because they can't be judged uh, and it's and it's bad and the best the best are the best at coping with that, that that type of scrutiny you have to get players used to that scrutiny to a level and be able to manage it ignore it and, and deal with it but I read a, um, a quote from an athlete who's a female athlete I think and she just retired really successful female athlete Somebody said, what, um, what will you miss? And she just said that. She just said being judged every day. And it's, and it's sad, but for her, probably that was maybe what helped her finish, that she'd had enough of that. And how We have the best jobs in the world. We have the best jobs in the world, so I don't want to put it as, you know, there's, there's a lot of mental health issues in sport, a lot of mental health issues in cricket, because that scrutiny causes that pressure and stress. But I also know... There's a lot of mental health issues in, in life full stop. Um, but we have the best jobs. You know, we, we're doing the things we love, and that's what we have to remember. We're doing the job that we love. We have the privilege of coming to fantastic grounds. It takes us around the world. We meet some great people. And when we forget that and we lose sight of that, that's when we're in trouble. So our job of coaches and support staff is to help the players keep seeing that. So how how do you do that? How do you create an environment that you try and make enjoyable where they ultimately they are being judged but obviously you want them to feel like there's a level of support and care that goes along with that judgment how do you facilitate that it's through your language through your conversations through trying to help create an environment that is supportive but realistic um we're trying to help manage some of the, the noise that goes on around players and the club um and sometimes you can't, you can't just help it. You can't do enough. It's there. And sometimes for me, as a, when I was a player, for players, it just gets too much. And they need to be taken out of the firing line 
firing line and either have a little break from the game or they're going back into the England play to go back to county cricket where compared to England there's less scrutiny still scrutiny but less scrutiny um, before they go back into that arena again um, but you you just say you just try and I mean there's a lot more awareness now on mental health and issues all the things that go along with it um, as I say that's if it was my philosophy as a head coach you're asking about my philosophy it's it is trying to get the players to be able to understand the performance need of what you do, which is your job, uh, and on, but on the flip side, being able to manage that stress, that pressure, uh, and understand yourself as a human being, as a as a person, um, to be allowed to breathe. You've got to be able to, you know, to be able to breathe and be who you are. As, at least it's always saying when I was in the with the girls that. You can never forget, you know, you're somebody's, first of all, you're somebody's daughter, you're somebody's sister, you're somebody's niece. You know, having it none of my mothers at that point. And that's fundamental. I have to remember that. You know, you're not somebody who's just got no runs or no wickets or four wickets or, or 100. That's first of all, we're people, and then secondly, we're cricketers. And imagine that's a, a message when you relay it enough that resonates with the group where they start to see the person who's dropped the catch not someone who stitched them up and now we've got to spend an extra two hours out in the field, actually it is Sarah or Tim or whoever, the person, they've made a mistake, it wasn't their intention, how am I going to support them to hopefully get it right the next time? Yeah, um, I think I think if we're all honest, emotionally in that moment that catch goes down, you are thinking worst, um, the consequence of the, the mistake. But you're trying to do, and the better you are, you move on past that as quick as you can to support the person who's probably feeling gutted about what they've just done. Um, but yeah, because nobody feels, I mean, failing any, any life is, is hard. Um, but failing publicly is, is harder. But you, you know, we know that learning's ugly and the ugly, you know, what we call the uglies, the ugly zone is a learning zone. That's where you truly learn and you truly move on. And the game gives you context to your practice. You had a player in the last game, he made a couple of mistakes and he's a young player, but it's, it, it, it gives you practice context next. You know, because you have, sometimes you have to get your fingers bent to know that the fireplace is a bit too hot and I've got to treat it with a bit of caution and not just whack my hands on it. Um, but you have to get bent. But the, the best players move what, the best players learn the lessons quickly and move on quickly. The ones who have average careers get stuck in, I wish, I wish I had, what if, if only, and don't learn and repeat mistakes. And is there any particular strategies talking about going into, I guess, the limelight or under more judgment or scrutiny, scrutiny that you have for individuals making that jump? Because, you know, we sit and watch test matches, for example, and you'll see the ball go past the outside edge four or five times. And then half an hour later, there's a segment all about the angle of the bat or the type of delivery they struggle with. And I always think you're essentially giving the opposing team a blueprint of how to get that individual out if, if they were sat there watching and I'm sure they've done their resets subsequently. But the level of judgment and scrutiny is going to be a lot higher. So is there any you know, skills or methods that you would try and embed into an individual that you think may make that jump to support them to deal with that? Yeah, of course you do. You're trying to get your player to be as resilient and aware of what's going to happen. The scrutiny is going to come under, but I don't know if you're a dad. You know, you, you know, I'm a father of two children, but nothing prepares you, no matter what people tell you about what being a dad means. And you get your child home for the first week and you don't sleep. Nobody, nothing prepares you for that sleep deprivation, no matter what anybody tells you. And everybody's experience is, is their own experience. And that's the same as going in the test arena or going playing county cricket, everybody's experience of pressure and scrutiny is, is personal to them and how they cope with it is personal. You try and prepare people, but you're then ready to support them you know, when they come out and need a rebuilding or rebooting or hopefully they have enough about them or they have enough luck and 
and you prepare them a well that they find a way to battle through and get through and get to, to calmer waters, which is less choppy. So let's take that first example that you said there, where maybe they have come out, they haven't done so well. There's been a few areas that they, they've struggled with um, and they, they've been replaced and obviously they're coming back to you guys. What would that process look like for you as, as a coach and staff? You're approaching that individual who I'd assume is going to come back into your setup. What would that initial contact look like? What type of things would you discuss? How would you support them? And then I guess what would the plan be for them moving forward? Well, we just we just had Don Sibley come back to us, so you you're trying to get some contact with with England to find out what things you can support the player with to help them get back in. From a cricketing point of view, you're trying to ask what how is he mentally. Um, you're trying to meet your player to try and work out where he is. Lots of England players, with time as a head coach, come back in different places. Sometimes there's a little bit of relief that they're actually out of that place. Sometimes they're in a terrible place. Um, and actually, they need not to play, really. We, a couple of weeks off, as much as you want them desperately in your team, the best thing is actually have some space. So, first of all, you do your communication with England, um, trying to work out what he needs, where, where he's at and what he needs as an individual. Does he need space? Does he need a bit of empathy? Or he's actually fine and he'll just slip in relatively back into the fall, but they generally bring you baggage. When the player gets left out, the same as the first team are going to the second team, they generally take some baggage because it's not war, but they've just been in battle to degree and they're coming back with a few scars and, and wounds that need, need, need healing. So then I guess it's a judgment call by your team as to whether that individual is in the right place to jump back into your side or, like you said, whether they need do need a couple of weeks. And I guess in, in the dog and Sibley example you're using now, you know, you've got an important game coming up. Ideally, you'd want Dom Sibley, who's all firing in your team, because that's going to potentially give you a higher priority to win. But you're obviously looking after him on a personal level as well. Yeah, and, and the other players as well, because sometimes the player can be actually destructive to your environment because of the place he's in. And that's hard. And then you said, again, it's a judgment call. Because you're trying to understand, because obviously poor behaviour generally comes for a reason. So you're trying to work out and understand where, why he's behaving or acting like he is. And then secondly, what is the best thing to do about it? And it's like your kids, players are like your kids. You're trying to give them a bit of slack as well what they've just gone through, but equally there's a line that is a delicate one because it starts to affect other people. With the example of Sibs, he's come back willingly. Yeah, he, obviously he's hurt and he wants to go back in, but he's slipped relatively seamlessly back into us, which has been brilliant. You know, how he's been around a couple of the, the more younger batters who's been outstanding. It's a testament to him, to him, but it hasn't always been the case with England players and at different times. That was going to be my next question. I can imagine that would be challenging depending on where you are in the year and what the England team are doing. You might have a team that's won four of their last five or done really, really well, but then your almost superstar player comes back in or is available for selection. How would you go around, I guess, those types of conversations? So... I grew up in Hampshire. Kevin Peterson was a good example. Kevin Peterson was a good example. He would go away with England and come back. And I always felt for the people who were three or four in that order, because you probably knew he was going to come back in and play. So how do you go around managing that with those individuals that maybe have done well, but you feel like this player gives you an even better chance to win? Well, players are fools, they know. Yeah, they're gutted. But if you... If you're the Hampshire number three and number four and you're averaging 50 in the championship, England or you is going to be left out. It's somebody else. If, you're, if you've done well and you're averaging 35, well, KP is going to come back in. Performance is king. So ultimately, selection's in the player's hands. It was in my hand. If you perform to such a level, they can't leave you out. There'll be nobody who's ever been left out who's got, bloody neck, he's got the best stats ever. That will very, very rarely happen. If it's going to happen, it's probably more likely to be a bowler. When you're only playing four, you're playing six batters. You won't have 
you're not leaving somebody out who's done exceptional. You might be leaving somebody out who's done well. But it depends if you, you know, it's good or great, isn't it? I had a conversation with a player a couple of months ago. Do you want to be good or do you want to be great? And that's a question. That was a nice, it was a nice conversation. We're open. Players lovely. In a good place. Just got 100. And I was asking him, do you want to be good or do you want to be great? If you want to be great, you go and get 150. If you want to be good, you get 110. And you probably have a really good county season. If you want to be great, you get 150. You go, or maybe get 180 or 200. And you go make your selection to the England Lions team or to England inevitable. That's what the best do. The best make selection inevitable. People like me, I wasn't good enough, so I was always relying on other things and hoping and being a good team man and all those bits to to, to get on my, my side of selection. If there's a, a criteria why you might pick somebody, you know, because I wasn't as as talented or as good as a Darren Goff, I had to have great team man, all brought into the wind. I had to have all these things in my favour. I think it's a really interesting point because like you said some of the the best players are those you know interesting characters and maybe at times that they they get selected when I think others wish they weren't but because they're that good they 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 have to be um when you're well, teams, tolerate, teams tolerate teams teams tolerate to a level and look there's many great players with great blokes as well Chris Mooks is the best bloke in the world it's you know, there's always there's always players will bring you an edge, and you have this. I, I say this to academy directors: you've got to be careful what you knock out of sixteen, seventeen-year-olds that you want in your twenty-five-year-olds. You want players to have an opinion and to be able to answer back, and not just accept what you say and speak up in team meetings and say, "No, this is wrong." All right? But equally, if they're not agreeing with you, or they're answering back to you. You know, we can't, our egos can't get out of the way. It's, it's so. Why do you think that's so important? What? The the ability to stand up and say, I don't think that's right, or we need to do this. Or why, why do you think their ability to not knock that out of them? Why is that so prevalent? You need, players, you need people who can think for themselves, who are independent enough to take ownership on the pitch and solve problems on the pitch because the coaches aren't there on the pitch. And we, there's a thing called middling, which I'm sure you've heard of. Middling is, it comes from education where, so in, a, in, a, in an education academy or school, in a class, it's safer to be in the middle. So you don't want to be the, the kid who's not that really, really thick, who everybody takes a mickey out of. But equally, you don't want to be the swat, getting stick for being too keen. And that happens in cricket. You know, the, the group want to bring everybody into the pack because it's safer. And you don't want to be in the pack. You want to be the one who's standing out. And you know, from a coach's point of view, sometimes it, it can be about us and you've got to think it's not about us. And you know, you, the, the, the male brain doesn't mature to it's 24. So it's still, it's still the last, the last bit that it, that sorts itself out is the bit around risk taking and and everything else. So we've got young men anywhere between the age of twenty seven and say twenty four, depending when final maturity happens, making mistakes, having trouble with timekeeping and everything else. And yet we can be too strict. So yes, we need boundaries, but as I say, we have to understand what's happening in their lives where they are before we become more judgmental. And we want independent players. You see, you, you want players who can, in, in pressure sport, who can cross, as a keep going back, who will cross the line, who can handle that pressure, that scrutiny, and have the, that lovely strength to want to express themselves and do what a lot of players might feel uncomfortable doing. And so it's a. No, go on. Okay. So all I was going to say is, do you think that that is. You can't ask for it on the pitch, but then not have it off the pitch. So if you if you've got someone who's combative and vocal, and you want that because you know you're going in a tour in South Africa or a tour in West Indies or Australia, and it's going to be hostile, and you're going to have fans giving you stick on the boundaries and all that type of stuff. Do you think it's then unfair to say off the pitch you've got to be a choir boy and act as if 
you know, butter wouldn't melt, all that type of stuff. Do you think that it has to cross over life to a degree? Well, it, it, you, you're never accepting poor behaviour and you're never accepting rudeness as okay and you're never, you're not saying lateness is all right either, um, but you're trying to shape people. You're trying to mould people like we mould our kids. You know, when you, you're a coach, you're in charge of somebody else's children. Um, young men trying to find their way in life as players and you're trying to shape them. So a bit what you're trying to say, I mean, I had the Anagra once with Academy Direct and it was about kicking somebody off because of an issue. And I was saying, we've got more chance of changing them within, within our environment than we have them out of it. And they just wanted them out because they hadn't hit a criteria for something. So it's, it's fundamental how you see life, but as I say, there's always a line. So if a player is fundamentally influencing negatively the environment and causing trouble, then that's different. But our job as coaches is to mould them off the pitch and on the pitch and shape them, not to squash them and put them down. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I've had a couple of interviews looking at... um looking at fighters and MMA and boxers and stuff. And one of the comments made about that is like, if you're asking them to be a free spirit and unique and whatnot in the ring, then how can you ask them to be completely normal and whatnot out of it? They say like that uniqueness is something that's going to transpire across both. And I guess what you said, it's managing, managing what that looks like off the pitch to then, potentially allow them to flourish and whatnot on it because everyone likes unique characters or unique styles of play. Um, And I'm not advocating lack of discipline. I'm not advocating, you know, there's there's sort of, there has to be boundaries and rules, of course. So I'm not saying that, not at all. But understand what's happening, understanding how is the best way to influence and help the person. What's their background? Um... And empathy has to have a big word. For me, empathy is a big word in how I coach. And and that's why so you always come back to that line. You know, in the end of the day, it's performance, runs and wickets. You always have to go back to that. But equally, how do we get that player to that point where he can, he's now 27, is it he's 28 or whatever, is it? Is at his peak. And he is handling pressure, performing. And he's a, a great role model, isn't it? There's a journey to get to that person, to that one. We don't start like that at 18 or 17. And the, the maturity of the person and how well we support a player will be the quick, enable them to get there quicker. No, it's really interesting. And looking at maturity and stuff, you mentioned earlier kind of going on those Lions tours. I'd imagine that is a big learning opportunity for both the coaches are on there, but also the players and the ability to kind of go away. Maybe some of them for the first time, they might not have been abroad or in in those environments. Um, Do you want to, as an overview, just explain what those tours look like? And then is there any one in particular that stood out to you where it was a really good experience for the players and maybe they had some challenges on the tour and were able to learn subsequently? I think when I think sometimes we can look back romantically at, at situations and events, and that was a turning point. I think generally, learning is just a continuous thing, and all experiences are good, even the bad ones, because um, allow us to grow and reflect. Um, I don't know. I mean, the first tour I was on was Sri Lanka. We we got. Um, Johnny Burstow, I might, there's a, there's a challenge, there's a ta- there's a potential that my laptop might crash on us at some point. Um, we had Johnny Burstow and he just he joined us halfway or a third of the way through and he'd just been come back from the Ashes tour in Australia where we'd been hammered 5 0 and he hadn't gone very badly. So obviously he was in an average place. He'd gone badly, team had gone horrendously and he's just had loads of time away and he was being sent off almost. To the second team, which is the Lions Alls, to go join us. And that, you know, we needed to manage Johnny carefully because of, as I say, just come out of battle with all those scars. And we, but equally, we, 
we had to be empathetic to what he was, but equally we had to protect the environment and the, the other players as well. But the, I would say some of the players around him were fantastic and getting that balance between keeping him on the straight and narrow and taking him out for coffee and learning. And that will only play, only would have played a, whole, a small part in the quicker that Johnny Burster has now become, you know, one of the best better keepers in the world and red and white ball cricket. The whole experience of that disastrous Ashes tour to go into the Lions, dealing with it and coming out the other side, comfortable or as much as he would enjoy the tour, I don't know. It's just all part of that journey that joins up all those dots to allow you to be the player you want to end up becoming. And how how much opportunity do the younger players get to learn from older ones? So I know I've seen your playing career. You were around some interesting characters in terms of Darren Goff and I think Tendorka. I could have been wrong, but in terms of that, how much opportunity did you get to pick their brains and how much would that happen across England sites and how much is it just generic by understanding and watching the game? Everything you just said, both. And a lot will depend on how good the player, the, um, the senior player is in sharing. Um, some senior players share brilliantly. And as at Sussex, and I was head coach there, Mushtaq Ahmed was like, and Murray Goodwin, the best two players we had, were like assistant coaches in a way. I mean, I'd be packing up after practice and Mush would still be in the net to a young player and Murray Goodwin would be in the indoor school with a, you know, senior, uh, with some, another batter. You know, just passing on all the time, but you'd have. We had a an unbelievable T20, one of the best T20 players in the world, was at Sussex. Had his no trouble whatsoever. Had his practice, went to golf. Had his practice, went to golf. That was just him. Didn't add. Didn't add his added performance. Didn't add off the pitch in terms of sharing that experiences and helping in that way. So it's. It wasn't a bad bloke, it was a great bloke, but it's it just different. So different players and, and good environments will, will help facilitate some of that sharing and learning, but it's, it's, it's all about the quality of the, the senior players. And when you're looking, I guess, back on your playing career now and you look at someone like Sachin Tendulkar, like, could you tell when he came across that this guy is, is unique or that he's just on a different level to everyone else? Was there anything particular about him as, as an individual or not? You couldn't tell to, to how you describe that. He was obviously, I mean, he was a 17-year-old kid, overseas player at Yorkshire, biggest county in the country. Uh, he had to go home because he got a bit homesick in the end. Um, but, yeah, what a talent. Pretty obvious, what a talent. I don't think anybody at that point can forecast he'll go on to be the player he was. He was unbelievably lovely as a person, unbelievably humble as a person, unbelievably talented. And to do what he did in that first, it wasn't a remarkable success, but to do as well as he did at the biggest county, our first ever overseas, there were all the signs, when you look back at it, he's showing that this kid's got something about him and he's got a potential to be, a potential to be special. But using that word potential, look, as a head coach, um, Joffre Arch. Chris Jordan put off Joffre Archer over when I was at Sussex. You don't earn your money spotting Joffre Archer. You don't earn your money water spotting Sachin Dendulka, Darren Goff. You, you, you earn your money. I took a punt on Tammy Beaumont, not a punt. I had a belief in Tammy Beaumont. Um, I had a belief in Chris Jordan when Sully sacked him. That's where you earn your money. Not, not on spotting Kevin, not on Kevin Peterson. They're just going to be legends anyway. They're obvious. Some players are obvious. It's the ones you get through are not obvious. You earn your money on. You don't ever want to release a player who ends up being a superstar. You release lots of players because you think he's not quite right for your team. And they can have successful county careers elsewhere, and that's okay. But you get it wrong if you release somebody who ends up being a superstar. That's when you've missed it. Is there anything that feeling that makes you take a punt on a player? Just from a personal perspective, is there anything that you look at or any contributing factors you'll say, potentially I think this could be a real superstar, even you know, if it's test or well, Tammy Borman and Chris Jordan didn't necessarily know they're gonna be a superstar because I think the superstars are obvious. So we've got a lad a lad at Moitshire who's got the potential. 
I use the word potential because there's no guarantees to be a superstar. But he's also pretty obvious to see. It's the ones who are not obvious. They're the ones you're trying to, you know, you invest your time in and you, you know, there's say Chris Jordan got released by Surrey and you're thinking there's something that you like him. You like what he gives. You like what he potentially is going to get you. You know, the same with Tammy Beaumont when the England girls, when she's in the out group, she's not playing, she's not part of the crowd and she's way, away away and you reinvest time and, and then they start to really kick on and surprise you in a good way. And sometimes players just need belief and backing. And do you think that just sometimes it's being in the right environment for that player? So it might be your way of coaching, you know, really resonates with them. Um, and equally, the other way around, they may really resonate with someone else in a different environment. Yeah, but you don't often get the chance to choose your coach. All coaches will try and have the great intentions. I'm sure most coaches will speak similar language. That's what I'm doing, and you'll be better want to say whether that's true or not. But you, every coach's intention is good, but whether the player can connect with you and connect with the environment, whether the environment's right for them is is different. So, you, again, you're trying, to, a player's got to be aware of the culture of the team, of the club, the needs, and try, without losing their sense of who they are, um, that to that environment. So I come to Oitch as a new coach. There's no point in forcing my culture on the team. My beliefs, I've got to understand the culture that I'm inheriting um, first, and then I can potentially shape it and mould it slightly till I see it for the better. But for me to come in and suddenly change it, it that's where coaches can get it horrendously wrong. I guess that links to you need quite a close relationship with your captain, don't you? Particularly in the longer formats of the game where, you know, they're out there for hours and hours at the time and coaches really are, are watching on and you can, you know, do some analytical work in the background and might be speaking to things. But if you're out in the field, it, it's very challenging. So how do you go around formulating plans with your captain and how do you go around you know collaborating to get a a culture that you discussed there which ultimately is going to come down to him and the senior players to drive just through talking trying to communicating trying to plan together to talk about um and it depends on the maturity of your captain you know you have a young captain who's going to be less um adapt experienced at some of the stuff off the pitch and you can have an experienced captain who's been there longer than you at the, the club and the team and you know he's massively influential at shaping you know the the, the, the current culture of the team and, and the future one as well so it, there's no set ways and, and every example will be different and every team you go into and every captain you have will, will be different as well so I think to know what you're accountable for is, is quite good. And the interesting one, I think for the for the cricket coach, is I don't know, and I, I you'll read something like Chris Silverwood selected his his squad. Well, as he selected it, as Drew Root selected it, Ed Smith when he was selected, who selected it is that, isn't it? And I think some sounds are just an assumption that. Um, the coach is the one who does it. I mean, in football, the manager is accountable for the eleven that goes on the pitch. And if you just said in cricket, that's not the case. So I don't think there'll be many coaches who will have final say on selection on the eleven that goes on the pitch. I think, yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I guess it is if you <coughs> make clarity around that and say, right, this is what the areas I'm going to focus on. This is the areas you're going to focus on. We'll collaborate on this, but you have those that clarity, I guess the most successful teams and the ones that have those really strong identities moving forward, that is what they're able to do and how they have success over a prolonged period of time. 100% look, and I don't care who you are, you only win when you've got good players. Very good players, whether you're the best captain. Wayne Morgan, London Spirit, arguably the best international one-day captain in the country. 
is it London Spirit or London, or the other London team and they come bottom of the lot? Is that a reflection on I mean Morgan as a captain or is that a reflection on the, the coach? Was that just a reflection that they didn't have the best players? So you can put whoever you want in charge of the team. You haven't got you haven't got the best players in the short term, you're not gonna win. Yeah. Fair point. So last <coughs> question from me, and it might be a challenging one with a lot of the experience you had, but who's the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Um, Pete Moores was a great influence. So there's a good influence on me. He's a developer of people, developer of teams, um, from a coaching point of view. Murray um, Goodwin as a player, Mushtaq Ahmed as a Believable player and person when we caught Mushy. Not only was he getting 100 wickets a year, but he was the most humble man in the world as well. It's, I think it's always nice when you, when the, the great and the very best players are, have got that sense of humbleness or sense of wanting to give back as well. That's always a, a, a pleasure. Um, but I mean, my, my first lines to our late loads off Kevin Shine. As a bombing coach, it's fantastic to speak to. He taught me a lot. I learned a lot off both Thorpe and Rants when I went on those tours. So you're always learning, and you depends on where you are sometimes as an individual of what you're picking up, and whether you you know sometimes you're in a really good place to listen and and you're curious in the right time, and sometimes you're not. So sometimes it can be a little bit around you. Perfect. Listen, really appreciate your time, Mark. A really good conversation and loads of interesting bits and culturally how it it challenged some of the workings that I've done previously in football and whatnot. Um, All the best for the coming days. Um, I hope you're well and I will catch up with you again soon. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.